Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week I'm very pleased to be joined by Jim Al-Khalili, who's a theoretical physicist and broadcaster, best known to us all as the host of Radio 4's wonderful series, The Life Scientific. But he's here not in his capacity as a scientist, quite, but as a novelist. Jim's just written his first novel, which is a full-throttle science fiction thriller called Sunfall. Jim, welcome. Thank you. Can you give us a bit of a sense of the setup of Sunfall? I mean, it's, it starts by being about the sun, but actually... Yes, I mean, in a sense, it's sort of a Hollywood disaster movie in a book. I mean, it's, it's hard science fiction, so it's near future. And what it does is take the science and technology that we sort of know today and extrapolate it a few decades into the future and then build in a world under threat, science tries to come to the rescue. What was it that made you think, I'd like to write a novel? I mean, is it another way of putting scientific ideas out there and communicating science to the public, or was it just fun? It really began as, as, as a, a vanity project, just fun, that, uh, you know, why not see if I can turn my hand to fiction? I think in retrospect, I look back now and think, yeah, actually, it's probably quite a nice vehicle for getting across the positive side of science you know a lot of people are concerned about things like artificial intelligence or genetic engineering you know where is science going so to try and paint science in a in a positive light say that you know it can actually help humanity overcome challenges is probably putting it into fiction is probably a good a good idea but no it it started simply because I thought it would be a great fun thing to do and the disaster or potential disaster you've thought of is one that yeah, I mean, you know, we're sort of past climate change and so on. It's, it's talking about this idea of the Earth's magnetic field, which I think many of us are sort of dimly aware is kind of A, important, mm. and B, slightly overdue a reversal. Can you talk a bit about how how that affects the, the novel? You know, what's the MacGuffin here, if you can explain mm, it without that, a spoiler? That's right. I mean, it's, it's not an entirely original idea, although there are aspects of, of the novel, obviously, I hope, are original. But... Um, Yes, the, the Earth is like a giant magnet, and we know it, it works. It has a magnetic field because otherwise a compass wouldn't work. But every few hundred thousand years, the Earth's polarity flips over, so the magnetic north becomes the south, and when that happens, compasses will point in the opposite direction. And we are overdue, as you say, we're overdue a flip, and we don't know why. We don't entirely understand the Earth's magnetic field. We know it's because of the liquid, the molten metal core in the centre of the Earth, rotating around within within the centre of, of the Earth that generates these electric and magnetic fields. We also know that Mars, we believe, did have a magnetic field, but for whatever reason, we don't understand, that magnetic field died. And with it, any potential life on Mars also died, because a magnetic field provides the bubble wrap around a planet. It protects it from all the yes, radiation from space. The as, as, as being a bit like bubble wrap. <laughs> that's right. So we know the magnetic field's there because we, you, you see the aurora borealis, you know, the, the northern lights, and aurora australis in, in the southern hemisphere. Well, that's particles from space hitting the upper atmosphere, and then the charged particles that are created are guided and bent by this magnetic field. So we know it's there. We don't want it to die. And the premise of the book is that, in fact, it turns out it's not about to flip, but it's, it's, it's dying, and, and, uh, and therefore the race is on to try and do something about it. Yes, and if it does die, then we're in all sorts of trouble because, well, there are a couple of things that you describe. One of them is, I think, cosmic radiation, and the more proximate problem is 
a, was a CRE? A oh, com- a coronal mass ejections. CME, C- CME sorry. Yes, CME, yeah, I, yeah, I was yeah. losing my acronym. <laughs> well, a coronal mass ejections, so that, the sun, every now and again, it burps out this hot plasma of gas from its surface, which just gets sent out into space. And what you don't want is for it to be aimed at the Earth. Now, of course, when it is aimed at the Earth, it could, if it does hit, we get a direct hit, it'll, you know, destroy satellites up in orbit, but at least humanity survives because we have a magnetic field that deflects it. But of course, with a weakening magnetic field, we wouldn't be so well equipped to to protect ourselves from a coronal mass ejection. So that is one of the biggest threats facing humanity. But one what of what, what the sort of interesting kind of ideas in the book is that people know that this is happening. They know that you know, not that the Earth's going to flip, but, you know, mm. them, the high-ups, the, you know, the world government, the very, very senior people at the UN, are aware that the Earth's magnetic field is dying. And at least in the first part of the book, there's a sort of conspiracy theory thing going on because a whistleblower, a hacker you've got... Yes. ...discovers that they know this. And then, in fact, it's not, you know, we'll have to weather this difficult bit while the magnetic field weakens, flips and writes itself. It's that, actually, it's curtains. And they've kept this from the world... Do you have any kind of sympathy with those conspirators? Because actually, in the because they say, well, we're not doing it because if people know the world's going to come to an end, yes, that, that's right. And I think that's something I had to learn in in writing fiction that it's not goodies and baddies, white hats and black hats. It's not just clear cut. So while these governments are trying to hush the whole thing up, there is a rationale behind it, you know, because once the whistleblower does tell the world that in fact the magnetic field is dying, then, you know, of course, the anarchy and and chaos rules. And so they're trying to keep it quiet while they think of a solution. But, But of course, they don't have a solution until this idea of using dark matter comes along. Yes, well, this is, this is the, you know, rather kind of exciting bit for those of us who, who like the sound of sciencey stuff, the more sciencey, the better. You have this idea of sort of, zapping it with neutralinos which were going to become briefly heavy neutralinos and then charginos and oh, then they're going yes. to turn oh, back good. into oh, neutralinos well, you've done, you've done um, your homework <laughs> <laughs> I have, well, I mean, I've written this all down um, there's a lovely bit in the book there's a t-shirt you have a character wearing saying particle physics gives me a hadron yes um, <laughs> and I think a lot of people will have hadrons reading this book how much are you in that end of it pushing the science because as I understand it neutralinos are a kind of pretty theoretical object at the moment yes what i wanted to do was make sure that all the science in the book is feasible it's possible it may not end up being correct but it's still a, a viable nothing that's been ruled out yet nothing that's a sort of ground rules so, yeah and, and, and that and that's why i think i'm in a very lucky position because you know through presenting life scientific i talk to hundreds of, of of experts in all sorts of areas of science so i sort of know what is the cutting edge science now what are the latest ideas in in uh, particle physics for example or astronomy chap in the office next door to me at the university of surrey where I, I still teach and do my research is one of the world's leading experts on dark matter so i would go to him and say right neutralinos because we don't know what dark matter is made of we know it's out there so neutralinos are they still candidates for, for dark matter yes he says that it's still possible i don't want them to be discovered to be the dark matter particles before the book <laughs> goes out um, and we're nearly there now so that's yes, fine <laughs> um, but also i don't want them to be ruled out or dismissed as not being possible because I want this to be a feasible explanation. So all the science in it, I made sure was correct. Yeah, and, and some of it is more speculative. And the idea is that with these new neutralinos, 
which pass through normal matter, you know, as if it were not there. Yes. When they meet, you have the, you have the kind of highbrow analogy of Ghostbusters, you know, don't cross, don't the, cross streams. the streams. <laughs> yes. Um, they convert to matter or to you know, non-dark matter particles. Is that right? That, that's right. So we know with normal matter, so the, the sort of experiments that are carried out in particle accelerators like the Large Hadron Collider, basically you get two beams of particles of normal matter, very high energy, colliding head-on. They just create a lot of energy which then f- freezes out into new particles. That's how we discovered the Higgs boson, for example. Well, the idea here is that dark matter, although it passes through normal matter as though it were transparent, it passes straight through the Earth, two dark matter beams colliding will self-interact. Now, that's an idea that I've pushed a bit beyond what is currently understood, but it is still possible. And so the notion is you you want to deliver energy to the core of the Earth and, and not have any of it wasted on the way there. So you have beams of dark matter from different parts of the planet all firing into the centre, meeting at some point to create energy to kickstart the Earth. Kickstart the Earth. And is this, I mean, I'm... I'm assuming this is more plausible than the solution that they came up with in the core. Yes, <laughs> it's yes. a movie that I watched with great enjoyment, but some scepticism. Well, and I, in fact, I even refer to it in the book here, rather sort of disparagingly, <laughs> as it, that this is this is not like that stupid idea in that Hollywood movie of half a century ago. Well, they're going um, to come burrow down to the earth and firing fire nuclear bombs, and firing laser beams ahead of the ship so that it vaporizes the rock on the way to the core, which is complete nonsense. Whereas, by dark matter theory, it's perfectly feasible. Excellent. <laughs> Do you think that this is, this idea of the Earth's magnetic field dying is sort of the next big anxiety? I mean, in your book, it's 25 years on, and you sort of say, rather fleetingly, you know, well, we finally, finally the policymakers listened to the scientists and we managed to sort out climate change and we managed to sort out i think it was uh, you know bacterial antibiotic yes, resistance yes which presumably are the two big anxieties from your point in, of view in, now indeed yes is this the next one is that a plausible i in reality no i don't think so i mean i i, I don't want to do down the the, <laughs> the drama in the book i want people to believe that this that this could happen we do know that the earth's magnetic field is due a flip and we do know that the magnetic poles are moving far more quickly than we thought so stuff is happening in the core of the earth that is going on now that we're trying to understand so it's not impossible time scale's a bit slower than the sort of one or two hundred years 30 years exactly yes that's right i've sped things up for the for the purpose of a fast-paced thriller (laughs) they also mentioned something which again you know sounds sounds like it must be from real life something called the le champ excursion yes suggesting that the magnetic field flipped completely for about you know ten seconds, forty thousand years ago, is that well, maybe not ten seconds, but sort of over the, over the course of a century or, or, right. or so? Yes, this is real. Forty thousand years ago, it looked like the Earth's field was going to flip, and it sort of got halfway and then changed its mind and flipped back again. But during that period, the field was very much weaker than it is now. So it has been suggested that maybe when the Earth's magnetic field is very weak, radiation from space can get down to the surface of the Earth, and it's very dangerous radiation. So it has even been postulated in scientific papers, which is something I use at the very start of the book, that that may have been one of the reasons why Neanderthals became extinct in Northern Europe, because they were zapped by radiation, and the climate became more horrible than it was before so they couldn't survive it right, it does <laughs> does ask us so much so much further reading you know, at the end. <laughs> yes. um, now i mean the vibe of the book feels to me like a kind of cross between 
you know, which I remember with huge fondness, those sort of 70s-style disaster blockbusters. And yes. with a mixture of that sort of 80s cyberpunk, you know... Yes. You know, what, you know, was this the stuff you were reading when you were growing up? I mean, uh, Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I certainly a big influence was Stephen King, not necessarily science fiction, although he has written science fiction, but that sense of peril that every chapter ending ends with some ominous... And then he came for her, or you know, and, and yeah. so, so that it's very much in that style. But also, yes, some hard science fiction writers, you know, sort of people like your current writer Stephen Baxter is, is a um, science fiction writer. But I mean, I was brought up on Asimov and Heinlein and and Arthur C. Clarke. You know, what's called hard sci-fi? Yes, no, the hardest. I mean, I was a great reader of Larry Niven. Larry was, Niven, was, absolutely, know, yes, 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 and Jerry Purnell, yeah. The, very much that you know, the science that we know today extrapolated not too far into the future. And also, it's not the usual sort of dystopian virus writes out the world and a band of survivors have to, you know, like you, so many, most Netflix movies yeah. <laughs> seem to be now, you know, teenagers with superpowers battling zombies and vampires. No, it's it's the threat of the world do ending. You, do you mind much as a consumer of SF and that sort of, you know, whether it's hard SF or... Soft. I mean, obviously, it's a challenge to you, and you know, you're a scientist, so you're, you know, you've written yourself some rules here. But I certainly enjoy hard SF, and and Hollywood does some very good movies like this. I mean, I'm I'm not a big fan of Tom Cruise, but certainly some of the films that he makes, and sort of Minority Report type type films, are really cool and very clever ideas. So I do like that hard SF. But on the other hand, I'm not one of those scientists, you know, who gets upset particularly when a, a science fiction movie gets the science wrong. I guess it depends on the context. If it's Prometheus, you know, if, if we all hate it, or scientists hate Prometheus. Um, <laughs> gravity, you know, we all nitpick, you know, whether Sandra Bullock, you know, how realistic it is. But, you know, I don't walk out of a, th- a cinema having watched the latest Marvel movie you know, because Spider-Man has broken the laws of physics. You know? <laughs> you know, I'm fine with that. You know, so, yeah, you know, so, yeah. Sort of tut-tut when laser beams go pew in space. You know, yeah, right? but uh, yeah, that's all right. I, yeah, it's fun. No, the key's in the word fiction, right? <laughs> uh, do you, um, I mean, when you're creating a book like this, do you start out doing a lot of, before you start, kind of world building? I mean, were you thinking, you know, what's this world going to look like? You know, you've got your idea and your MacGuffin and your, your plot, I guess. Mm. But there's an awful lot of sort of background detail which is really lavish about yes. how AI is working about how you know people interact with the world through augmented reality about all those sort of other aspects yeah I really enjoyed that part of it doing that research to try and imagine what the world realistically could well be like two or more decades from now obviously because I'm a first-time novelist I had to go back and put flesh on the bones and 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 actually bring that world to life. Maybe, you know, if, if I write another novel, I, I, I'm better practiced and I know how, how to go about the, the craft. So certainly the plot came first and I was interested in all the, the science and gradually the world took shape. It was, in, it was in my head. Maybe it didn't hadn't taken shape on the page and I had to sort of put my imagination down, which is one of the things I had to learn as a, as a first-time novelist. There's a sort of moment in the book which interested me where... You're, you know, your heroic, you know, pink-haired, tattooed... My, my cyber hacker, hacker yes. Know, just a lovely kind of... You know, she's the best character in the book by far. She is, absolutely. Yes, you know, yes, she yeah. made me think of... Well, she's sort of cross between girl with modern tattoo and Molly and Neuromancer, you know. Yes, um, yes. But she's found her cache of secret documents encoded in the quantum encrypted, you know, net. And then she's like, 
I should release these to the world. And she goes, I can't, because they'll just get lost in the noise of the net. And I'm sort of interested in that, that this idea we've had that complete availability and complete transparency, the information being everywhere, presents a sort of noise-to-signal ratio. Yeah, and, and in a sense, one could imagine that only getting worse. You know, when we're worried today about fake news and, and you go to a website and you see a bit of information, do you know if it's true or not? But imagine with artificial intelligence being able to manipulate so much information and make it seem real. How do you sort it out and so she, she's faced with this dilemma that she can't just release the, these revelations because it would just be lost in the noise or simply dismissed as another conspiracy theory and so she has to do something much more concrete about it also ai again early on there's a i think where some of it you know there's a disaster that affects an airplane and all of its automatic systems are locked out and you know the pilot doesn't remember how to fly a plane properly. Right, he, hasn't, he hasn't had to for many years. <laughs> he hasn't had to for however many years, and they don't normally. You know, I mean, are you optimistic about AI, or do you have that anxiety that actually the more we subcontract many of our tasks to AI, the more vulnerable we are? This is something that I have thought about in my day job my, as a serious academic. I had to give a, a speech. I, I'm, this year, I'm acting president of the British Science Association, which involves having to make comments on technologies that are emerging like AI. I'm pretty optimistic about it. The, the issue with AI is I believe it's going to change our world more than the internet has. We've only had the internet and the World Wide Web for 25, 30 years. Think how much AI is going to transform our lives in the next 20, 25 years. And it's going to be huge. But I'm also aware that wider society are genuinely worried, whether it's robots taking our jobs or whether it's, you know, your Terminator scenario and Skynet switching on and machines deciding they can dispense with, with human beings. AI is coming. We can't slow down the technology, but I think we need to be ready for it. And I think what we haven't got in place yet are the ethical rules and regulations to control it and make sure we, we put it to good use. But if we do, I'm hugely optimistic about how AI can hopefully tackle the big problems facing us in the 21st century. Do you think Asimov's laws of robotics will cut it, or are we a bit beyond that? We, we may need a bit more than that. I mean, that, <laughs> that really pretty much applies to what's called artificial general intelligence, when a machine becomes self-aware, self-conscious, sentient. And I think that will come. There's, there's no, I have no doubt, but it's not going to come in the next 10, 20 years. But I don't have this view that somehow the human brain is magical, that there's some pixie dust sprinkled on it to bring about life consciousness, a machine will be able to think as well. Do you think machine consciousness would be similar in character to human consciousness? Not necessarily. No. Why would it be? Why why should it be? I mean, uh, certainly human emotions like envy and anger and jealousy and happiness are there in, in other mammals as well. So, And they are just higher level software functioning in the brain so consciousness is a sliding scale but i think machines can become self-aware while being very alien in the way they think when you, compared to humans do you think it's simply a function of complexity yes as a computing machine becomes more complex it eventually yes i don't think there's any i don't think there's any non-computability any sort of magical step that where the human brain has something that you could never replicate in a machine uh, what what can it be it has to be subject to the laws of physics and chemistry is that what you'd see as, you know, I don't know if people talk about the singularity. The singularity is when machines, yes, become so clever they can make clever versions of themselves and exponentially become more intelligent and then very rapidly outrace us and become far more intelligent than humans could ever imagine. 
And then what do they do with us when they think we're not needed anymore? I think a lot of that is science fiction. The moment artificial intelligence experts will say we don't have to worry about that, but that's partly because they believe it's far enough in the future that we have more immediate problems with AI. So it's not, it's not a theoretical impossibility, it's a kind of theoretical likelihood. Well, it's, it's certainly, yes, I think it's a theoretical likelihood. It's, we just need to be prepared and make sure we, we guide it in the right direction. So if a, a much stronger form of Asimov's three rules uh, is, is going to be necessary. <laughs> I'm always intrigued by scientists who are prepared to argue that we might need less science. I mean, do you ever have that anxiety that, for instance... The complete, you know, we talked about the noise-to-signal mm. anxieties about the internet and complete transparency or, you know, information overload about anxieties that AI can go to a certain level. I mean, do you have that Prometheus anxiety or do you think the solution to too much knowledge is always just more knowledge? I've never believed that knowledge is in any way bad or knowledge is it's always better than ignorance. But we need to be prepared and responsible for that knowledge. I mean, there are things, you know, genetic engineering and gene editing and super babies and so on. Those sort of concerns are because the technology and the science is, is coming at us so quickly that we're not ready for it. And maybe we know we should have a moratorium on some of these advances until we know what to do about it. But you can't stop science. You can't stop progress. Science is, is, is a way of finding out how the world works. Enlightenment is, cannot be worse than ignorance. No. Okay. <laughs> do you think our political structures, which are you know, moving less fast than science, are, are able to... I mean, I suppose the question mm. isn't, should we have less science, but you know, are we going to have to find a way of adapting our political structures to this sort of advance, because they're not moving as fast as that cliche of, you know, Stone Age brains and Space Age technology and early modern institutions. I think the problem we have today is that the science and technology is coming at us ever more quickly. Ten years ago or 20 years ago, a smartphone would have seemed like magic. You know, so the, the gap between these huge revolutions and changes in how we live our lives are coming closer and closer together. And the way society deals with it, the way politicians and policymakers deal with it, isn't keeping pace, isn't speeding up at the same rate. Things like artificial intelligence, yes, certainly I think governments are putting into place committees and publishing reports and and, and doing studies about how it's going to impact society. Wider society isn't probably quite prepared for what's coming round the corner, and I think it needs to be, but I guess then that's down to people like me to (laughs) you know, make sure people do. Do do you think it's plausible to expect it to make it possible that wider society given that some of this stuff as in your book is it's not quite the province of technocrats it's very very hard to explain you know some of these issues they are just more complex than most people who don't have you know at least an a level or a degree level qualification in robotics or whatever yeah i can understand does that argue for a sort of rather anti-democratic know what we need is wise men ruling us well yeah you know i think yeah we do need experts <laughs> as the phrase goes i mean that's an expert is someone who spent their life thinking about a particular issue or problem and understands more about it than other people because that's what they focus their attention on and we do need to uh, to listen to what they have to say and you're right we, we can't explain the intricacies and, and details of some of these technologies to the wider public so they fully appreciate it they have to become scientifically literate enough to understand 
some of the issues, but also to understand who they should be listening to and who knows what they're talking about and who doesn't. That's a that's a bigger challenge in, in so today's testing authorities. That, exactly. You absolutely. do quote, you do quote somewhere in the book, and it's a famous quote, and I can't remember who it's by. That saying, if scientists can't explain what they're doing to a four-year-old, oh, they're not that's doing science that's, that's Kurt Vonnegut. It's uh, Vonnegut. Right? Yes, yeah. yes, that's that, right. That yeah. noted scientist, Kurt Vonnegut. Do you think? <laughs> do, yes. Do, do you think that's true? No, I don't think so. I think uh, there's another famous quote by a better scientist, Richard Feynman, who was interviewed after winning his Nobel Prize in physics by a journalist who said, can you explain what your Nobel Prize is is for in in one or two sentences, in a soundbite? And he said, young man, if I could do that, it wouldn't have been worth the Nobel Prize. Uh, So so that's And on the Life Scientific, I remember interviewing Peter Higgs, he of the Higgs boson, uh, and again, you know, I asked him to explain what the Higgs boson was in a minute. And he just flatly said, no, I can't do it in a minute. I've spent 50 years trying to get my head around this. And it's complicated. So some science is hard. But we need to appreciate that the people who do understand it do so because they've devoted their lives to it. And by saying just for fun, if you don't think that the death of the Earth's magnetic field is the next great problem on our horizon, you know, what's your money on after microbial resistance and and climate change obviously what do you think what do you think is the next great disaster well, I, I, we're going to face or challenge i think we're, we're starting to appreciate that we are probably destroying our environment more quickly than we imagined you know whether it's micro particles of plastic in in the atmosphere whether it's ecological disasters of wiping out species of insects and so on and we don't understand the the whole ecosystem and how delicately balanced it is so we we are sort of riding roughshod over our planet's resources and we're just starting to appreciate that uh, we can't trash the place and it's not simply because we know we need to pick up our litter as we go there may be something much more serious than that so I think we're just waking up to that now and and the sooner the better. Jim Alcalini thank you very much. Pleasure. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store we'd love to hear from you.